Okay, today my guest is Professor Eleanor Vesni. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with her. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Eleanor as a person. Professor Vesni is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of her accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Vesni is an AIB fellow. She is now Professor Emerita at MIT and at York University. She has written extensively on Japanese organizations, on the internationalization of R&D, patterns of cross-border organizational learning, and on institutional theory and the multinational enterprise. With Sumatra Goshal, she edited organizational theory and the multinational corporation. She served as the Dean of the AIB Fellows from 2008 till 2011. She has received the Eminent Scholar Award in 2013, the Global Community Award in 2021 from the IM division of the AOM. She has served as chair, program chair, track chair, or member for the AIB Farmer Dissertation Award Committee, AIB Annual Conference, Fulbright Fellowship Council, and NSF Doctoral Dissertation Awards in Sociology Committee. Uh, she was also a consulting editor at Chips, and thank you, Eleanor, for joining us. Thank you. Very good and very lovely short introduction. <laughs> was, that sounded great. Thanks. Uh, Eleanor, what did you want to become when you were a child? Do you know, I, I don't think I even thought about what I would become. I just wanted to be some, it, to be something where I could spend most of my life reading. So that worked <laughs> out. Yeah, it did. <laughs> And you got the books right behind to prove. Indeed, yes. <laughs> <clears throat> Can you remember uh, the earliest moment of awareness between domestic versus uh, foreign? I think it was when I was a child because I grew up on a small family dairy farm. Um, and in the 1950s, Ontario farmers had a program whereby people from Europe who had agricultural backgrounds and really needed work could come and work on a farm in Canada for a term. So um, from the time I was quite small, we had a hired hand um, and most of them came from the Nordic countries. Uh, one was Norwegian, one was Danish. Um, and it, it was an eye opener to me that there were people from other places who didn't speak English very well. And I didn't know anything about where they came from. Interesting. Uh, and uh, how, how did you choose scholarship or IB scholarship in particular? How did you choose your... Well, scholarship school? chose me. It was an era where um, funding was quite generous. And if you did well as an undergraduate, your professors encouraged you to just stay on the escalator. Um, and from the time I went to university, I was quite well-funded, undergraduate less well, but... Once I became a graduate student, I had a Canada Council grant, I had a Woodrow Wilson grant. Um, and so I just kept going and it kept being fun and interesting and I kept learning things and nobody kicked me out. So that's basically the story. It, IB came about after I had started a career in sociology and it came about because I was studying Japan and this was the early 1980s and business schools were desperate to have someone who could credibly talk about the Japanese business system. So I wound up at, I got pulled into MIT Sloan and that was a wonderful opportunity. 
Perfect. Uh, something uh, that you wouldn't put on your CV that people might find interesting. Well, in my final year of high school, which was Pickering District High School, quite a small one, I won the drama prize. And that's because I'd been in the school play every year throughout my five years of high school. And in my final year, I actually wrote and directed the annual school play. Wow, that's something. <laughs> that's congratulations. Uh, well, if you didn't do... Uh, academia, if, if you didn't pursue academia and became a, a, a professor, what would you do? What would, what would be the second best career path for you? Well, I think the, the, the second choice when I was in graduate school, and it was reflected in the Woodrow Wilson grant, would, be the, would have been the Canadian Foreign Service, um, which was at that time still basking in the reputation of Lester Pearson, who had been a university lecturer, who joined the Foreign Service and won the Nobel Peace Prize. So there was a halo cast over that Canadian Foreign Service as development oriented, peace oriented, and interesting place for, for smart people to go. And I wanted to be a smart person. <laughs> and who was the most influential person on your upbringing? Uh, maybe your mentors, your advisors? Uh, that's extremely difficult because I had so many of them. Um, uh, I had an uncle who was um, a United Church of Canada minister, but was very interested in comparative religion and actually wound up teaching comparative religion at Victoria College. Um, and he was a very important mentor when I was growing up. Um, in high school, I had an English teacher who was had worked in publishing before she became an English teacher and was a character um, and, and very demanding and insistent on a on correct grammar and on correct and clear writing and on memorizing large chunks of English literature, which has stood me in, and there are, I can still recite most of Tennyson's Ulysses by heart. And it's a great resource to have in the memory banks. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, regrets, have you got any regrets? Sorry? Regrets, anything regrets. Uh, you wish you would have done or done differently? Yes. Um, I think I think the thing I regret most is not earlier in my career embarking on collaboration with really smart colleagues. I was a bit defensive. I think it becomes it, I, I justify it to myself as you know when you're a foreigner studying Japan, you're always you're always struggling for credibility um, and feeling that you actually don't know enough. Um, and then as a sociologist joining a business school. Um, I, I felt, and I hadn't had a business degree, I always sort of felt I didn't know enough to be there, um, but I was learning things. But that defensiveness got in the way of my showing my work to people at an early stage. And that included my first book. I don't think anyone saw the manuscript until I sent it to the Harvard University Press editor. Once I got more established and, 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 and had some insistent colleagues who wanted to work with me, bless their hearts, in spite of everything, uh, I learned the joys of collaboration and how, how infinitely easier it makes the extremely difficult task of writing academic research. When you say defensive, this is not about you worried, being worried about them stealing away your ideas. No, not at all. Else. No, I was afraid they might find out that I didn't have many good ideas. 
Well, how can this be? Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, about uh, failure and what you learned from uh, failure. What was your biggest failure? Oh, I think my biggest failure um, was not following up with, with scholarly articles out of my book. Um, the book was on the transfer of Western organizational patterns to Meiji Japan, um, sort of late 19th, early 20th century. Um, I, in, my justification is that I had grown up in a, been socialized in Princeton sociology, Department of Sociology, where books were the way scholars communicated. Uh, I was never taught to write articles. I was never directed to writing articles. We were supposed to write books. Um, and the switch to a business school was a, was a, a readjustment. And I, I was caught between it. I knew I wasn't supposed to write books, but I didn't quite know how to write articles. Um, but I, I should have found out more quickly how to do it and, and done some, but the books still get cited but the work would have been more useful to people if I had managed to put it into more articles. Sure. I mean, the field is different, right? The field uh, is different. Yeah. So uh, well, what are you most passionate about? Oh, if I have the thing that springs to mind is learning things. Um, I became an academic because I, I just kept learning new things and it was always interesting. And I think that is what drives most scholarship. Um, you want to understand something. And um, I, I worry sometimes that our insistence on socializing PhD students in doing the right thing, like writing articles, uh, can, can drive out the, that bedrock of it's got to be driven by curiosity, wanting to understand things. Um, now let's uh, switch to research and let's say you're stranded in a small village because <laughs> don't know uh, anything about you and they don't read your work regularly they haven't read your books or, or or they don't know you how do you explain your research and the importance of your research to people uh, who don't read you it, it, it is it is a challenge um i think what I would, what I say to people, what I say to my relatives who often try to figure out what I get paid for is <laughs> what I'm really interested in is understanding how the, the societies around us and that came before us change and particularly how they change in response to what other places are doing. So how do people take things that people are doing in other places in very different ways and learn from them. Uh, and then when they're learning from them, how do they change? Because when they move from one place to another place, what patterns of behavior, they change. Uh, ways of doing things change. How do they change and why? And that this enables us to understand better the kind of worlds we create for ourselves and our children. Uh, Eleanor, uh, you, you've seen a huge change in, in the field as well from yes. uh, what we were in 1980s uh, in, and today. What can you say about the evolution of the field? Um, that's, that's quite, a, it's a, that's an important and a fascinating question. And, and uh, every scholar probably sees it quite 
somewhat differently because of when they entered the field um, and where they came from. So I entered the field, there's a very clear entry point, 1982, when I was recruited to the MIT Sloan School into the, interna the International Management Group that was headed by Dick Robinson, um, who was one of the grand old men of the AIB, one of the founders. He was an anthropologist by training who had spent much of his scholarly work um, in Turkey, but in on the development side. He very much saw the world through what we would now call a critical lens. Um, he was critical of multinational corporations. He, he thought they did much good, but he thought they didn't recognize the harm that they did. Um, he, um, he believed passionately in students getting out into the field, in working with real companies, really engaging with the problems that businessmen were having, but also engaging with the, the impact that that was having on the markets, on the societies in which they were operating. So Dick to me represented the old AIB, which was multidisciplinary, because of course, when a new field is created, they have to recruit people from other places and disciplines. And um, the early years of the IB field were much more interdisciplinary, or uh, sorry, multidisciplinary than we recognize now. Political scientists, sociologists, anthropologists like Dick, um, as well as people in business schools. But there were a lot of people entering the field who entered the business school when they entered IB, they were brought in because of their understanding of comparative uh, research and or other societies. I entered the field at a time when that, that was starting to change. When um, the economists had developed, were developing the internalization theory that much to the chagrin of those of us who are not economists is called the theory of the multinational corporation rather than the economic theory of the multinational corporation. Um, and so one of the things I have observed is that the growing dominance of economics in IB as kind of the core foundation, which to the economists in the field seems quite natural, um, but to the rest of us, and, and it tended, uh, and, and the other thing that then happens as a field develops is that it recruits more internally. So people entering the field are trained in IB as opposed to being trained in other disciplines. And that's, that has many good things, but it also, for, for a field like international business, which I think is inherently multi-perspective, it has some costs. And um, what I'm seeing now is growing challenges to that economists' domination of IB, more challenges in terms of methodology, in terms of theory, in terms of even what theory is. And I think that's a very healthy development for the IB field. I mean, you said a lot of important things here. Uh, I mean, we were discussing with, with a colleague a couple of days ago about colonization of the fields by uh, economics. Ah, yes. And uh, from some perspectives, it is good because uh, a very famous economist once said, there are no uh, symbols for confused ideas. And he was talking <laughs> yeah. about 
modeling and how to use certain uh, Greek letters to denote yes. certain things. Yes. And he was criticizing or, or organization behavior or HR field because of their uh, soft approach. Yes. Uh, I mean, let's just uh, talk, talk about multidisciplinary versus interdisciplinary research. Yes. Uh, well, what's your take on the next steps uh, in the field? Well, I actually think that that distinction, as you were indicating, is an extremely important one. Multidisciplinary research means the acceptance of multiple disciplinary perspectives on the phenomenon under consideration. So as in the early work, you know, there was recognition that economists had contributions to make, but so did anthropologists and political scientists and sociologists, that by drawing on the theories of their fields, they could illuminate complementary aspects of this very complicated phenomenon of cross-border business. So that's multidisciplinary. Interdisciplinary research involves bringing people who are grounded in different disciplinary perspectives together to do research on an empirical problem and try to develop a shared understanding of that phenomenon. It's extremely rare uh, because it's so hard. Um, and, but it's worth trying to do more of that. It would be involving like saying, listen, we have an opportunity to do research in company X. Um, let's get an economist and an anthropologist and uh, or someone, someone who defines their core discipline in those terms, a political scientist, a sociologist, an organization theorist, and have them come together and form a research team and figure out what the hell's going on here to explain these problems. And the first thing is, what problem do you think is interesting? And right away, you're going to have difference, differences of opinion on what's an interesting problem. Um, but talking that through and even trying to do it, and I, I just, I sometimes think if I were 20 years younger, maybe make that 25 years younger, <laughs> I would be, I would try to organize something like that. Um, and, and, and even to, to start, have a workshop where you would bring company, bring these different people with these different perspectives together and have a debate over a very, uh, over not, the abstract, but over an empirical phenomenon, you know, the demise of the, 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 the downfall of General Electric as a multinational company. Uh, what, what, you know, was there anything about its multinationality that contributed? That might be, you know, I'm just, I hadn't thought deeply about that, but that kind of a problem um, would be an interesting and, and very explicit, not something big like supply chains but a specific supply chain, empirical research. Sorry, I went going on and on about this. No, no, but... this is very important because I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I have an agenda on this, in this one. Uh, uh, I'm formally trained in economics. My advisor, mm. uh, Odet Shankar, is uh, trained, uh, is a sociologist uh, from Colombia. And uh, we're, we're now working with a team of uh, researchers in France, they are, uh, studying primates, uh, they're, they're studying monkeys and apes and chimpanzees. So we're basically uh, designing these experiments uh, to test uh, cooperation and competition. Uh, 
the reason I'm asking this question is because I'm worried uh, which journal is going to publish this paper. <laughs> so uh, interdisciplinary, everyone has, uh, yeah. is saying it's important, it's important. Yes, yes, it is. And now I'm going to experience the process of the review and the editorial uh, decision, uh, yeah. whether it fits here, whether um, uh, the idea is, yes, interdiscipline is important. And yet, the, are the journals ready to accept uh, papers or are people qualified to even review these uh, papers? Yes. Uh, so that is the question, really. Uh, it's a hugely... It's a hugely formidable problem for true interdisciplinary research. Interestingly enough, I was on a panel um, back when I got my uh, honorary degree from the Stockholm School of Economics. Was it then or no? It was, it was slightly after that. Anyway, they brought some of the honorary degree recipients back. I guess it was their anniversary a couple of years later. Um, but Jim March and I and uh, uh, three other people from different disciplines were on a panel on the, what's the value of interdisciplinary research? And um, Jim March was very much on the, you know, interdisciplinary research is what people do when they can't do real disciplinary research. <laughs> I think he was partly being agent provocateur, but uh, I think he genuinely sort of in this heart of hearts believed that. Um, but I think the rest of us felt that it was hugely important. It was extremely difficult. And one of the things that made it difficult was gatekeepers like Jim March. <laughs> and we told him that, but, but I think it's a problem. And that's one of the reasons why I, I lament so much the current devaluation of the book because books are a forum in which you can publish heretical, and stuff that doesn't get past the gatekeepers, but has a huge impact on a field. And if you look at IB and think, what have been some of the formative works in IB, and particularly in my area of that, which is understanding multinational corporations, the classic works were books. True. And I think that's hugely, that's that, that, that if we are going to start being creative instead of replicative in scholarship, we're going to have to go back to recognizing the, the crucially important role of books and that books can be evaluated. It's not as some of my economist colleagues who've never written a book in their lives um, say, well, you can't, you can't, books aren't refereed. So there's no, and, and yes, they are. They, the presses send them out for review and they get they can get some discouraging reviews, but if you get a good editor who realizes that getting controversial reviews that are quite passionate about a book, whether even if they're negative, might be a good indicator that this is something that's going to get attention. Let's put it out there. Interesting. Uh, what would be the advice to uh, young scholars who are in who are studying IB? Uh, if you were to give advice about omitted variables, neglected areas in IB research, um, yeah. can you identify a couple of things that we need to study more of? Um, I, I 
do think, you know, this is not, I think one of the interesting things for young researchers is to find an omitted, not so much a totally omitted area, as an area that has some history, but hasn't been mined very well. Um, and I think one of those is um, the, one of the classic themes of IB back in the 70s was the very different perspectives you can get on the MNC from people in corporate roles and people in local roles. And what's very interesting is that corporate and local roles in multinationals have changed dramatically. It used to be that basically anyone in a subsidiary was in a local role, except perhaps for the general manager of the subsidiary. Now there are a significant number of people who are physically located in the subsidiaries that report up a corporate ladder, not a local ladder. They're the, the local uh, person for the global supply chain management organization, for example. They're a, a local um, quality control person for the global quality control thing. They're the local brand representative for the global brand, brand organization. They're the people that are now much farther down in the hierarchy, but they're in that interesting position that the subsidiary manager was in in the 70s when much of this, the pioneering work was done, the 70s and early 80s, where you're, 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 you're trying to speak with both voices. You're seeing the local, you're embedded in the local, but you're talking up to the corporate and you're, you're a carrier of the corporate into the local. Those roles have been underexplored in contemporary IB. And I think if we really want to, to invigorate our teaching and bring it relevant, bring increasing relevance to our students, that's the kind of thing we should be looking at. Sure. Uh, thank you for that one. Uh... Uh, Eleanor, about uh, advice to young scholars, uh, what are some of the common mistakes that you see uh, junior faculty or PhD students uh, make um, in handling their careers early on? Oh dear, some of my colleagues are going to kill me for this. And it, it does reflect my own biases and training. I think that the biggest mistake you can make is signing on as a research assistant to your professor's research topic and getting your research agenda more or less defined by this project. Now the project can give you funding, it gives you attention, it gives you a nice clear problem. Phew, you know, those hours sitting in a room saying, what am I gonna do? You don't have to deal with that. The danger is that you don't have to cope with the most significant part of an academic career, which is deciding what you're going to focus on and what you really, really care about. Um, and so quite often something you should go through as a graduate student, you go through in the middle of your junior faculty trajectory after you've milked your dissertation for as many articles as you can get out of it. And now you have to answer the next question, which is what are you gonna spend the next 10 years on? And um, you haven't figured out how to figure that out. 
So that's a mistake, I think. Uh, there's a question I, I, I skipped, but now I want to go back to it about idle curiosity, about how the mind wanders. Oh, really. yes. <laughs> and uh, uh, about uh, coming up with creative ideas, uh, yeah. creation of ideas. How does it happen in a process where there's the uh, big name scholars who is uh, directing a PhD students to do certain things? Uh, well, what's your uh, suggestion on creative ideas? Uh, coming up with the next big question in IP. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a toughie. And and again, my bias is very much. Um, that of my training, so it might not be very useful, but here it is. Um, I think I think broad reading really helps. Advisors want to be helpful. They're not directing their students because they're exploitive, nasty people who want free labor for the most part. They're really trying to be helpful. And one of the responses that a, a, a creative and, and committed graduate student can make who's really thinking about a long-term career as an academic is to, to sort of think, hmm, this is a research opportunity. Is there anything in here that really speaks to me as an interesting, could I propose a kind of side project on this? So, you know, the research director is saying, uh, I'd like you to look at or do these interviews with this subset and it'll be a nice publishable piece of new and, and you can say, what is something in this general area of whatever it is the topic is, or whatever the access is, that I care about? And to get those ideas, read widely. Um, and not just articles, I think, not just contemporary articles. One of the things I've noticed is how few IB publications cite things before the mid-90s, when everything got happily logged onto Google Scholar. Um, and one of the things to do is do some backtracking. So find some pieces by people, scholars, articles that you really, really like. Look at the, the work they're building on and go back to that original work. And then sometimes even take that work and go back to that work. I mean, you can sort of that kind of intellectual backtracking can get you a sense of how people develop problems and how they identify problems. And that, and that links back up to your question, which is what do you think about when the mind wanders? The interesting things is that the more fuel you have in there for thinking, just wandering your mind around things, you, you're more likely to come up with creative ideas, you know? Um, we had, uh, we had a discussion at one AIB dinner when we were sitting around uh, to talk about where do you get the ideas for your research? And one colleague um, said, I read something and I think this is shit. And I, I really want to, I want to, I want to prove this guy wrong. So I go and do something. Um, Sumantra got his ideas very much from this interesting conflict, he was, he was very much a product of both Harvard and MIT because he had a PhD from MIT, Sloan School in International Business, and he had a DBA from Harvard that he did with Chris Bartlett, which was basically in strategy. And um, he got it, his ideas from the, the butting heads of these fields. What, what does one think is important and the other one doesn't? Why? You know, and, and arguing. 
Um, so Sumantra got his, by, by looking for contradictions, looking for where people disagreed and then getting them to fight about it. Um, I get it from backtracking in the literature and, and thinking, where did that idea come from? And what, what phenomenon was this person studying that they picked up on this? Oh yeah, they were studying Canadian multinational subsidiaries. They, you know, if you look at the world through the lens of a Canadian subsidiary of an American corporation, you see the world in this kind of way. Um, understanding that it's just, I don't know if that answers your question. It answers it perfectly. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, at the early uh, stages of the career, uh, PhD students or junior faculty usually know their papers, the one that they are writing, and they, they know the 50 articles that they are citing quite yes. well. Uh, and this uh, advice really uh, addresses their uh, shortcoming. Mm -hmm. But uh, what about the mid-career? Uh, faculty, uh, would it be yeah. different for them? What was your advice to mid-career yeah. faculty? I think now it it is starting to vary. It's too bad because even mid-career, if you have tenure, you're still under huge publisher parish pressures. And th that old New Yorker cartoon, you know, poor Professor Smith, he published and published and perished anyway. You know, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, you get on a treadmill. And, but I do think it is important to say, um, I, I, I need to set a 10 year plan for myself and I need to be deeply engaged with what I'm doing within those 10 years. What can I do that really, really interests me? And I think it's important to understand. And I think those two things go together. It's important that this get understood and, and being clear on who your constituency is. You know, um, I think one of the problems for the IB field, and it's inherent in business disciplines, um, is the capture by, um, I I, <laughs> business schools take an executive perspective on things. And much IB research does look at the world from the corporate suite or from people who want to get into the corporate suite. And I think early IB was much more interested in what does it, what do the people throughout the multinational experience? Because managing from the corporate suite depends on the efforts of an immense number of people who aren't going to ever be in the corporate suite. So understanding their perspectives and understanding how the organizational structure disadvantages, empowers, doesn't empower. Um, you know, it, it, it's just so important. And that we be a voice in executive programs for listening to the people in your organization and listening to voices from around the world, not just telling. Executives are great on PowerPoint presentations and telling. We know they're not nearly so good at listening. Um, for the sake of time, I don't know. Um, yeah. uh, well, what's the question that I should have asked you, but haven't? Oh, do you know, it was, it was there um, implicitly, 
but one is what that I thought of when when I saw that question because first I thought boy this is a wonderful list of questions you sent I can't think of anything but I think it would be what's the experience that you learned most from in your IB career I think that would be an interesting one to ask oh here you go what's the experience you learned most from I was thinking about that and I think there were two of them and one was um, working with Sumantra on a research project that we did. He had, he was my first PhD student at Sloan and boy, what a gift, you know, because from the beginning, he was a colleague uh, more than a student. And we, we worked together on the, the research that a piece of which became his, his MIT Sloan dissertation, but on competitor intelligence. And we, through MIT, we had access to three corporations, GM, Eastman Kodak and BP, big multinationals. Uh, and we got to spend a, a month within sitting in, literally sitting inside the competitor intelligence units of those three companies. And I learned an immense amount from that. And I learned an immense amount from Sumantra. Um, and um, I think that was, that, was, that was hugely important for me. I didn't always like what I learned from Sumantra, but it was valuable. <laughs> Uh, and the other was teaching um, teaching in a, a, a program for um, BP uh, major project leaders that was an intensive engagement that lasted over eight years, and we really got to know the company. And there is no substitute if you're studying business for that kind of engagement with a company. As a sociologist, I had been somewhat skeptical of that. So, so this is like a corporate training program for BP? Is this uh, yes, and, and it involved, um, I, I won't go into it, it was Don Lassard's um, design, and it was a brilliant design. They're, these major project leaders are the people who are basically responsible for, in the different aspects of BP, managing or about to be managing these huge projects in the oil and gas industry or in alternative, alternative energy, so they, and um, from all over the world. And from the two sides, well, the three sides of BP, which was a product of merger. So it was BP, Amico, and Arco people. Very different corporate cultures. Very, you could just, you could even hear in the accents um, the differences in the in the companies. Um, yeah, I learned, yeah, just, and, and they, we, we got to know those people. They came in for two, for three semesters of two weeks each, resident at MIT over a year. And we had, I think it was 11, 12 cohorts. I mean, I, I understand the uh, importance of embedded design. I mean, you're embedded in this uh, research yeah. context. Uh, and it's time consuming. Yes. And right, this is a really time consuming effort uh, at the expense of writing papers. Yes. On, on the, uh, about your experience uh, with the Japanese companies and Japanese um, yeah. uh, at the peak of the, the, the performance of the Japanese uh, corporation. Mm -hmm. Uh, what's the benefits uh, other than the, the obvious ones to, to be this embedded design for people who cannot really be uh, personally uh, vested in um, about uh, what can you say about the co-authorship design that your co-author is embedded and, and you basically are uh, crafting these papers is there an alternative way that you can learn from the experience vicariously but still be associated yeah. with the research. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, 
I, I, I think, I think there is, and one of them is, um, and I, I must admit, I didn't do this very well. Um, but looking back, I wish I had, um, is to, to trust what your, where the uneasiness comes from when you're engaged with people, um, because there were there were many times in the BP things that say, hmm, I wonder why he's saying that, or I I don't I don't quite get why he's saying, or that doesn't make sense. But in the interests of of you know getting along, you just sort of cruise over, and you don't keep notes on where are those slight friction points. And to, to sort of, if you can figure those out and then say, this is something I would like to explore in other ways. I think the main function of these intense engagements is to give you perspectives that you then take into more conventionally designed research projects, which is again, why it can be very useful to do collaborative research because you can have um, a colleague who's maybe deeply embedded in these programs who can provide some really useful input onto the research and become a co-author, um, but, but on another research project that doesn't involve them coming out in public in print with any potentially critical statement about the company they're so invested in. Uh, I don't know. Thank you so much for this interesting and uh, very candid interview. I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I did sure too. Thank you. Will, uh, agree with me. Thank you so much. Thank you.